everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and for our first episode, I thought we'd start with a case that has a little bit of everything. A scandal within the upper echelons of Scottish Victorian society, a salacious affair, and of course, a poisoning. This is the story of Madeline Smith. But first, a Victorian society tip. Victorian standards of beauty focused on pristine, white, pale skin and pallor. This paleness indicated that Victorian ladies' privilege never left them working in the sun. One of the tricks ladies used to achieve this look that is relevant to our story tonight is arsenic. An advertisement for one such product states, She was certainly an exquisite, lovely creature. Nothing could have been added to enhance her beauty. She compelled admiration and was an object of worship. This is the universal result of the use of Dr. Campbell's Safe Arsenic Complexion Wafers and Folds Medicated Arsenic Complexion Soap. These two world-famous beautifiers transform the most sallow skin into radiant health, remove pimples, clear freckles and tan, give the complexion an incredible brilliancy, and lend to every young lady a charm of person which makes her adorable. Sold by druggists everywhere. Born in 1835 to an upper-middle-class family in Glasgow, Scotland, Madeline was the oldest of five siblings. Her father, James Smith, was an architect who specialized in large country mansions. Her mother, Janet Hamilton, was the daughter of leading neoclassical architect David Hamilton. The Smith family lived in a prosperous area of Glasgow on India Street and eventually settled into an apartment on Blytheswood Square when Madeline was about 20. Now, they lived in a nice area before, but Blightswood Square was the wealthiest part of Glasgow. They also had a summer home in the country they would go to every year. So this is like a straight-up Downton Abbey, Bridgerton-style family. They're prestigious, they're wealthy, and they're well-known. Also in 1855, Madeline meets Pierre-Emile Liangelier, who goes by Emile. Now, Emile was a bit older than Madeline to the tune of about 10 years, and he had never settled down. He was originally from the Channel Islands off the coast of France, where his family owned a seed company and set him on the path to becoming a professional nurseryman, which, as far as I can tell, is like a professional landscaper or groundskeeper. He did do well in this training. He was a good learner, charismatic, well-liked, but this country life was a little slow for him, and he never really stuck with any of the apprenticeship opportunities he was offered. He loved the city life. He loved going out, partying, and meeting women. He did take up a few times with various young ladies, but it sounds like they all lost patience with his lifestyle and would leave. And when they did, he would put on these hysterical performances to try to win them back. The man did not like to be jilted. So at the time he meets Madeline, he's working as a packing clerk in a warehouse trying to make ends meet. Emile just very likely spotted Madeline out in the city and asked around until he found out who she was. Then, he made several attempts to orchestrate an introduction, as was the custom of the time. Back then, a man couldn't just walk up to a lady and say hello. An introduction had to be made by a mutual acquaintance. And the fact that they were from different classes made things a little more difficult for Emile. He learns that his co-worker's nephew's family knows the Smith family and talks his way into a dinner party where she will be. But it doesn't work. Everyone at the party thinks he's being pushy and awkward and won't introduce him to Madeline. Eventually, he chances upon Madeline while she's out and coerces the same co-worker's nephew to introduce him to Madeline. 
I very much get the impression that the co-worker's nephew was younger, but even he knew Emil was being kind of a weirdo about this. But being younger, he had a hard time standing up to Emil, so he introduces them. So they meet late winter, early spring. They begin to take walks and arrange serendipitous meetings at bookstores and such. And they begin to exchange letters. So many letters, literally hundreds. And reportedly, many of the letters were quite scandalous and steamy. And so begins their secret affair. When the Smith family goes away to their country home in the summer, they arrange to meet in the woods surrounding the property. And it's during one of these meetings that Madeline loses her virginity to Emile. This is not how nice young Victorian ladies behave. When the family returns to Glasgow, they move into their new home on Blycewood Square. It's at this home that Emile would secretly come to Madeline's window at night and they would continue to leave letters for one another on the windowsill. The topic of Madeline and Emile did come up in the Smith home a few times, and her father immediately forbade her from seeing him. He would not hear of it. And you can kind of detect this shift in her letters where she's almost hopeful at first, like, well, I want to be with you, and I just need to find a way to have my father permit it, to where she starts to just outright tell him, no, this must be kept a secret. Despite this, Madeline promises Emile that she will marry him, and they carry on like this for about two years. Knowing nothing of Madeline's relationship with Emile, her parents have been working hard to find someone suitable for their eldest daughter to marry. They find William Harper Minnick, one of her father's upper-middle-class business friends. With this news, Madeline begins to cave a bit to the societal pressures of her class and family, and she tries to end things with Emile. She tells him this can't continue, and she asks for her letters back. Now remember what I said about Emile not liking to be jilted? Well, he is not going to go quietly into the night, as Madeline hoped. Instead, he threatens to reveal their affair and publish all of their love letters, and her reputation will be ruined if she doesn't marry him. So Madeline is like, whoa, 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 you don't have to go doing all that, just simmer down, and I love you, and I'll find a way to marry you. But she has to, of course, keep up appearances with the new fiancé for a bit until she can find a way to break this news to her family. So for a while, she juggles both of them. But she comes to realize that this engagement train has left the station, and she is on it. She has got to do something about Emile. She's going to have to kill him. Early in the morning, on March 23rd, 1857, Emile bangs on the door of his landlady, who lives downstairs. He is very sick, and he needs help. The landlady calls the doctor, and the doctor comes. Emile is vomiting, having trouble breathing, he's in terrible pain. The doctor tries to ease his symptoms, but in a few hours, Emile dies. The coroner reported the cause of death is ruled to be arsenic poisoning. Police open an investigation and search Emile's home only to discover the dozens upon dozens of secret letters from Madeline Smith. She had the opportunity, the means, and the motive. So, she is arrested and charged with his murder. The trial begins on June 30th, 1857. Madeline was officially charged with two counts of attempted murder by arsenic and one count of murder by arsenic. And there is a lot of circumstantial evidence pointed at Madeline. A timeline is pieced together, and this is where our girl Maddie starts to look a little sus. Stay with me on this timeline now. After Emil threatens Madeline that he will expose her relationship, she writes to him trying to placate him, and the same day sends their houseboy to the apothecary for prussic acid, also known as cyanide for the reason of cleaning her hands she says the local apothecary will not sell to him though and when he reports back to madeline she's just like oh thank you and never mind 
Following that, on February 21st, Madeline is documented making her first arsenic purchase. She says she plans to use it to kill rats, and she signs for it under her real name. There is no documentation of Madeline and Emile meeting that night, but the next morning, Emile is very, very sick with stomach problems that keep him in bed for nearly a week. Now, prior to the documented arsenic purchase by Madeline, there were letters alluding to Emile suffering a prior bout of stomach illness in the month of February, but no one can say what it was. He also remarked to some people sometime within that period that it might have been some coffee or cocoa that disagreed with him that made him sick. Regardless, based on this, the prosecution thought they had enough evidence to go after Madeline for two counts of attempted murder. So one attempt immediately following the purchase and the second attempt sometime in February, give or take, no one can say for sure when. There is a second documented purchase of arsenic by Madeline on March 6th at a different pharmacy. Again, she says it's for killing rats. She signs for it with her real name. And this time she had been out with one of her lady friends. So it's not like she's hiding these purchases. On March 6th to the 17th, the entire Smith family is out of town, doing rich people things. On March 18th, the third arsenic purchase is made by Madeline. Again, she claims it works great on the rats and signs her real name. On a leading up to March 22nd, Emile was out of town and had a letter forwarded from Madeline that was undated but looked to be postmarked March 21st, the day before. The letter referenced a meeting tomorrow night. Believing it was written the day prior, he took that to mean that a meeting was proposed to happen that very night, the same day he received the letter, and he rushes back to Glasgow. Emil is accounted for up until about 9.20 p.m., where he drops off the map until he turns up again early the next morning, very sick at his landlady's front door, where, as we discussed, he does not make it through the day. That same day, Madeline learns of Emil's death. Two days later, investigators go to question Madeline, and by the next day, she has disappeared. No one knows where she is. Her brother and fiancé William eventually find her on a boat headed for the family's country house and bring her home to Glasgow. She claims her reason for running is she's afraid her parents will be very upset with her now that all this has come out about her and Emil. The prosecution alleged that she served Emil arsenic-laced hot cocoa or coffee on at least three occasions during their window meetings. Her defense noted that both pharmacists she purchased the arsenic from dyed their arsenic to avoid having it be mistaken for something else. And did the doctors who examined Emil find evidence of this? No, they did not. Now, if they had, this would have linked the arsenic Madeline purchase directly with the arsenic that killed Emil. But it also turns out that the doctors weren't really asked to look for evidence of dye. They just asked, did he die from arsenic poisoning, yes or no? So bottom line, no one can say for sure if there was or wasn't dyed arsenic in Emil's stomach. Also, it was kind of common knowledge that Emil took a little bit of arsenic regularly himself from time to time. He did this to alleviate stomach problems, oddly enough, and also give himself like bursts of energy or something. I don't know. They had some weird ideas back then. So Madeline claimed she purchased the arsenic for cosmetic reasons, which, as we heard in our Victorian society tip tonight, was a fairly common use of arsenic. She only said it was to kill rats because using the arsenic on her skin was like kind of a beauty secret of hers, and she didn't want anyone to actually know that she did that. She claimed that she learned it at school in England, and when the prosecution questioned one of her classmates and instructors about it, they were both like, no, we never told her that. The defense also brought forth testimony supporting that this was possibly a suicide. 
I mentioned that in the past he would go into hysterics over these women leaving him. He had been known to threaten suicide as a way to manipulate them into staying with him. These mentions of ideation were widely regarded by those who knew him to be just performance or theatrics, but he did say it. Although, I think arsenic just seems like a terrible choice if one wants to no longer be. If that were the case, he also clearly changed his mind. He stumbled downstairs, very sick, to his landlady's apartment. And if he knew he was sick with arsenic poisoning, wouldn't he have just told them, I took arsenic and please help me? But he didn't, so I don't buy the suicide theory. At the end of the day, they could not prove that Emil and Madeline met the night before the lethal dose of arsenic was administered. There was someone who came out of the woodwork who had been away from military duties for some time, then came back to Glasgow, saw the news, and said he did see a young man and woman outside the Smith's house that evening, but the trial was already in progress and he couldn't be called as a witness. Now, if convicted, Madeline would most likely have hanged for the crime. But at the conclusion of the trial, the jury rendered a verdict of not proven. Not proven is a verdict unique to Scotland, which still exists today, which legally means the same thing as not guilty, with the nuance that the jury is not actually entirely convinced of the accused's innocence, but the prosecution failed to produce sufficient evidence otherwise. So they're like, yeah, she probably did it, but they can't prove it. So it's ruled not proven, and Madeline Smith gets away with murder. In the aftermath of the trial, the family was scandalized. Her fiancé, William, broke off the engagement. The family was forced to move to a new city in Scotland, and then they moved within Scotland again, where Madeline eventually met and married an artist named George Wardle. They had a daughter, then a son. Now, under her married name, she was not so much subject to the stigma of her, of her past, and she became quite active in certain socialist groups. After nearly 30 years of marriage, she and her husband separated, and she moved to New York City to be near her son. She marries a second time at the age of about 81 in 1916 to a man named William A. Sheehy. William dies about 10 years later. Madeline Smith outlives her second husband by two more years until she dies in 1928 at the age of 93. She is buried in the Mount Hope Cemetery in Hastings-on-the-Hudson in New York under the name Lena Wardle Sheehy. Our friend Emil is buried in the Ramshorn Graveyard in Glasgow, Scotland, in a plot belonging to a family named Fleming. Emil's family was in France, so I believe the Fleming family were friends of Emil's and chose to give their friend his final resting place. So the burning question that I'm sure is on everyone's mind, can you read the letters? The Harvard Library hosts a special curiosity digital collection where you can read 149 transcribed letters of Maddie and Emile. Not all letters appear to be to one another, but most of them are. I've linked directly to the collection in the episode blog of my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. If you're interested in reading those, some of the highlights are on page 35, which begins a letter's exchange between the two after the first time they sleep together. Pure scandal. Page 136, which is one of the saucier letters where Madeline teases Emile about being in her nightdress when he visits. Page 146, where Madeline begs Emile not to expose their affair. And page 157, where Emile demands to know if Madeline is indeed engaged. I also read a pretty good book on the case where I got much of the information for this episode called The Strange Affair of Madeline Smith, Victorian Scotland's Trial of the Century by Douglas McGowan. I've linked to that in the episode blog as well, as well as other sources for this episode.
So what do you think? Do you think she got away with murder? I tried to look into if there were potentially other suspects in the case. I mean, who's to say he didn't have other enemies? But if there were, I couldn't find them. They focused pretty much exclusively on Madeline. And I have to say, I think, I think she did it. These two just sounded positively toxic for one another. They were like equally matched in their abilities to manipulate each other and make each other jealous. It was going to end in high drama and Madeline got there first. And Maddie was a rebel. I mean, she knew she was bucking the standard of society by being with him, and she did it anyway. And when she needed out and he pushed back, she did not become meek and woe is me. She bought arsenic. So head over to Instagram or TikTok to let me know what you think. I've also posted some photos there of Madeline and Emil, Madeline's home where they would meet at the window, and some other photos. You can also see the photos on my episode blog, plus any links I mentioned and other sources on my website at goodnightforamurder.com. Now, as I like to say, where there's a Victorian murder, there's a Victorian ghost. So if you're interested in hearing about the hauntings of the Smith's former residence and more, that content is available to listen to right now on Patreon. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. <laughs>